Um, I said last week that I was going to begin every one of these uh, sessions with a brief methodological, uh, I guess, lectures. I'll be doing all the talking for a while anyway. Um, I think it's, I do these lectures um, because I think that, as I said last week, that people are taught to use methods without their being taught that those methods are, in fact, methods and that there exist alternatives to those ways of doing things. And I want to make clear to everybody that this is a method that is an alternative to other kinds of methods. Um, and that the only thing we ask of a method, once we recognize that we're using it, is that we remain methodologically consistent. Right? So we want to, I want to outline what the method is in all of its aspects so that we can, so that we can see that it's uh, a consistent method and we can use it consistently. And also just to heighten awareness of the question of method, which is, uh, generally overlooked. Um, and so let me give that spiel. I also think, by the way, that people, students especially, ought to be made aware of what they're asked to do and why they're asked to do it, rather than simply uh, handed something and told to accept it. It always shocks me how little protest is made by students uh, to what they're taught in school. I, I sometimes say in other classes that high school student in America goes from American history to math to gym, I don't know, to, I don't know what other classes they have, to home economics, about the, the art. And no one ever asks, no high school student ever says, what do these have in common? Why am I being taught these particular subjects in isolation from each other? And I'm sure that happened to you in foundation, right? You had a draw. You had many drawing classes, yes, and then you also had a 3D class. And no one ever said, "Why are these two things being taught separately?" Because after all, 2D is only 2D with respect to 3D, right? And 3D is only 3D with respect to 2D. So why can't we teach them together? It's not so much that that that, that question has to be answered; is that the question is never asked. Instead, students just go from one class to another without ever asking what unites these things. And in foundation, I, I know they've changed it, but they, did, it, did you all take a lab course, a course called lab? Did anyone ever sufficiently explain to you why you were taking it? <laughs> right? But why didn't you ask is my question, right? Um, students tend not to ask uh, questions about what the structure of their education, and they ought to, they ought to uh, not because they have a right to an answer, but because asking such questions should be part of their education, part of their development. Education is what's happening to you. You ought to be intimately engaged in questions of why it's happening to you and how it's happening to you. To give a quick answer in the uh, in, in the high school question, the thing that makes all those the thing that all those courses have in common is the one thing that's never actually addressed in any of those courses: the mind of the student taking them. Right? No one ever talks about that. That could be addressed directly. We could say we're training a mind to do different things, but it never is said. And in fact, they're not actually doing that. They're in fact the educators themselves overlooking the fact that the mind of the student is what unites the curriculum. And that goes for by the way. And all schools, basically. So I want to bring these things to consciousness, not only because I think you're able to use a method better if they know why we're doing it and how it's done and what the implications are, but because you ought to be conscious of what you're doing. <laughs> and you ought to have questions about it. Uh, not so much we not so much 
uh, critical in the sense of why, you know, why I think I have to do this, as to say what, what are the implications of this or orientation for this question? What are the implications of this orientation for that question? Uh, I'll try to address all those questions as they come up in order and, and if you happen to ask them. So let me remind you what we did last week. Um, we started, as I said last week, with a pattern. And we noticed that the patterns, there was more than one pattern, and that the patterns were themselves interrelated to each other. So that we had patterns and patterns in our experience. Um, we were assuming, and we will continue to assume, that we apprehended those patterns as we perceived them, because they were really there in the work. But a pattern in what we see, we see because there's a structure in the work. So what to us is a pattern, of, what presents itself to us is a pattern of patterns on closer examination that we're holding to be inherent in the work as a structure of structures. So we were going from what was known to us by experience to what we hope is known according to the object. Right? So we're trying to move away from our, our subjective perceptions and correct them by, by constant reference to the object as we're looking for the objective structures of the work. We also said that if the various terms in the work mutually define each other, then the work was of necessity self-intelligible, which meant that it could be understood on its own but anything else outside of it. But if a thing is self-intelligible, it must also be a whole, right? And that I've said that the assumption this class is artworks of self-intelligible wholes. That's the assumption we're making. Not the only assumption that we necessarily make. Philosophical traditions abound differently. Um, most of the books that you read in that philosophy class essentially hold this, that they're self-intelligible wholes. But we know that there are other possible positions. But this is the position we're taking. And I contrasted this position, as I will continue to contrast it, with other positions. There was a position that said intelligibility requires a context, that the context of a work of art is the source of its intelligibility. In other words, that its intelligibility is to be found outside of it, because that's what it meant there, right? And in, we look at it at various contexts, we could see that there is a kind of historical approach it says you need to know the whole historical epoch in which the work took place. So a Renaissance painting has to be understood in terms of the Renaissance, something you're all familiar with, and went, which probably went by unquestioned. Another kind of context is an immediate antecedent event. Antecedent just means it came before, or if you like, an immediate cause. So if someone said, why did the United States go to Afghanistan, you would say, well, you have to understand the context. There was a terrorist attack on the country, right? And you would look for the intelligibility of that increasingly unintelligible action in its immediate antecedent. That would also be true of a work of art. What was, what was happening in the life of the poet that led him to do this? What was happening in the, the economic situation of the times that compelled him to do this? Uh, and that would be another context. Another kind of context uh, would be the subjective, subjective experience of the reader. 
things are only intelligible to the person who reads them, and they're intelligible to that person in whatever way that person finds them to be intelligible. Um, he would make his interpretation. Another way to put this, now we'll leave it at that for now. And those are all legitimate positions. I'm not disparaging them, although it would be, it would be hard for me not to. <laughs> because I don't really think that they're very, very uh, illuminating. Um, but all those would be, would be legitimate positions and they've been taken by great thinkers and great historians and great critics. Uh, um, that's fine. But they're not the method we're using. I mean, we're not going to use these methods. Now let me just explain a few of these terms here and then uh, take over from there. Uh, I know, I don't mean no. The way you know that Columbus, well, I shouldn't even say that. The way you know that the United States Constitution was ratified in 1789. That's a fact that you know, right? Um, I also don't mean known when you say I know how to play the piano. That's something that you're able to do. Known in this context refers to awareness, right? As we went from the patterns to the structures and as we went on, it wasn't that we learned new things, but we became more aware of the thing that was becoming more intelligible to us. We saw things that we didn't see before, right? We became aware of relations that we hadn't seen. And this is really a growth in awareness, not a growth in knowledge in some way, which means that you can't get it in a book. <laughs> and if you got it in a book, you wouldn't have it as awareness, right? The experience of awareness that becomes more, more aware of what it's aware of would be, would be exactly the experience method gives you. The facts won't give you that, that growth of awareness. So we're using known here in the, in the sense of awareness. A whole, I just mean that something, and I'm just going to say with literary works for now, but it becomes problematical when we talk about non-literary works, but bear with me. I just mean something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's all. Now, if you were to ask me how do I define those terms, I would, I would tell you that the end is that which comes after the middle and after which there is nothing further. Common sense. The middle is that which comes after the beginning and before the ending. So this is a significant thing. The beginning is that which comes before the middle but doesn't come after anything. What does that mean? It means the beginning is intelligible without you knowing anything but it. You need to know the beginning to understand the middle. You need to know the middle to understand the end. But you don't need anything to understand the beginning, which is why we began at the beginning. We were making the assumption that the beginning would be the most self-intelligible part of the self-intelligible whole. Now you see why that becomes a problem when you're dealing with painting. That's a problem we face when we're dealing with painting. But for now, that's just to be the definition. So why did we, if it's a whole, someone might have said, someone might have said, if it's a whole, why are we just starting with the first three stanzas? And I would have had an answer for that, but it would have been a good question to ask, to see my point. A whole, you ought to be able to get into a whole from anywhere, right? But not if it's a successive whole. No one does this anymore, but when I was, when I was a kid, you used to go to the movies, and you felt like it, and you'd walk in and halfway through, and then you'd stay around to the, where you came in. No one does that anymore. Somehow it worked. 
<laughs> I don't know how, it just means they were bad works, I guess. <laughs> um, because you know, if, you, if you picked up a Henry James novel in chapter seven, you wouldn't know what the hell was going on and who was doing what they were doing, right? But you could actually walk into a movie halfway through. You could walk into a television series, so to speak. It's a 10 years long, you could just start watching it in year seven and everything is perfectly there for you. Right? How they do that, I don't know. But in works of art, in the high sense, you sort of have to get them in the order they're, they're meant to come to you as. So that's where we began. Now, all of these positions would differ from what we just said. We said we're beginning at the beginning because it's a part of a self-intelligible whole, and that way we can figure out, we can become aware of what is there objectively. Right? These people would say, what you think is a whole is actually a part of a larger whole, namely it's part of the epoch, and its intelligibility requires you to know that whole to understand this part. Is there no place for you? Oh, sorry. There you go. Standing room only. Let me repeat that. They would say what you're treating as a whole is a part of a larger whole, namely historical epoch, whatever it's going to be. And since a whole, the intelligibility of a part depends on its place in a whole, you have to look at this larger whole to understand this much smaller part. Okay. That would be our objection in that direction. They would say, what you're calling a beginning had a beginning. In other words, the poem, the construction of the poem began before the first word began with the motive of the poet, the psychological feeling of the poet, the economic causes, whatever it was, but not an evidence of the poem. Okay. <laughs> and they would say, what you're calling awareness is projection. You're making your interpretation and you just think it's in the poem because you're deluded. In fact, there's no knowledge independent of the subject. Everything is subjective. You're just making an interpretation. Right? That would be the response there. And those are powerful criticisms, but there, there are answers to all of them, of course. Um, one is, there may be such a thing as a historical epoch, but how do you know? You must have examined individual works before you arrived at the sense of the whole. How are those individual works intelligible if you didn't know what the epoch was yet? Epochs don't begin with, it, with a, a, an overture, you know? Not like people wake up and say, hey, we're in the Renaissance. We have the following characteristics. That's have to be determined by investigation. Well, how do you investigate objects that are unintelligible until you know what makes them intelligible? In other words, there must be some intelligibility in the object independent or before you come to an idea of anything larger than the object. Causes are inferential, right? I don't want to get into the philosophy of it, but if you think about it, you never actually have direct experience of a cause and effect. All you have is a sequence of events to which you attribute causal nature. If I'm playing pool and I hit the cue ball into the eight ball and the eight ball goes into the pocket, all I really see is one thing happening after another. I infer that the striking of the first ball into the other caused the second ball to move. But I don't have direct experience of that. Uh-huh. Cause is not so easy. Cause is an effect which we think, which nowadays we take as being absolutely knowable, are in fact inferential. 
So why are you making an inference about something? Why is an inference better known to you than the thing directly in front of you? You actually have phenomenal experience of the poem or the painting. You actually see it. You don't see the causes that are alleged to account for it. Why would you think what you don't see and can't experience is the key to the intelligibility of what you do see and do experience? That's not an easy answer to, objection to answer, by the way, but it's a defense against that, that attack. And here you just have to say, you have to bite the bullet and say there is such a thing as objective knowledge, that not all knowledge is, in fact, subjective. But if we have objective knowledge or something close to it, and that we know that when we drop things that fall to the earth, and it isn't just a subjective position that we're taking for an actual fact, and that when we turn on the lights, the electricity runs through the wires because various characteristics of electricity that are independent of our subjective feelings about them. So in this, in this philosophy, we do posit the existence of objective knowledge, and that's what we're aiming at. One thing to notice about these things, at least these two, I'm hammering a blade at them because they're the ones that you're most used to encountering, right? Um, the first question anybody asks today if something happens is why, right? Um, the first thing that people will start talking about these days is my generation. That's a kind of epoch, you see what I mean? It's not a huge historical epoch, but it's, a, it's the idea that you can't understand a person unless you understand what hole they belong to. Or they might start talking about their race or their gender or something larger than themselves, right, to explain something. Um, you hear it all the time, what are the Gen Xers doing, what about the Millennials, as if everybody in this group had exactly the same characteristics, <laughs> right? And I don't get much in the way of objections to that, by the way. It was because I hated my generation that I was particularly sensitive to this issue. So we're used to thinking in terms of holes or larger holes, larger units in the individual, and we're used to asking about causes. Right? Um, someone asked me, what do you think is the cause of the decline of American education? Right? It's the sort of question you hear all the time. And I said, what if it's a doom? What if there is no cause? What if it's just an internal mechanism, like death, like the body dying? What if it's a self-caused phenomenon? What if it's self-caused? No one ever thinks about that. Uh, but the, the instinct is always to ask that. You break up with your, your, your boyfriend, girlfriend. I just noticed a sign up there that, that has all sorts of sexual groups that I don't know what they mean. <laughs> Intersex, I don't know what that means. Queer, as opposed to, I always thought it meant gay, but apparently it doesn't, it's a separate group. Did you see that sign up there? I'm going to ask the students what the hell this means. I don't know. How do I get on to that? Oh, I just broke up with my, <laughs> I guess let's call it lover. The first thing you'll ask is why, right? You won't say, ah, oh, yes, that's the way of the world. You'll just say why, and you'll expect an answer. So we tend to immediately think in terms of causes and holes. But what we tend to overlook is the fact that these things are not uh, necessarily so causal as we expect, and especially when it comes to works of art. The real problem with the epochal system, the epochal way of thinking, is it treats every aspect of the epoch in, with the same method. 
In other words, if, if you're in the Renaissance, you say there's such a thing as the Renaissance, and you look at a poem, you'll say it's a Renaissance poem. And you look at a uh, fashion, and you say it's Renaissance fashion. And you look at diplomacy, and you say it's Renaissance diplomacy. And I'm going through a list. You look at superstitions, and you'll say they're Renaissance superstitions. If you ever look at the, the classic work that established the existence of the Renaissance, because it had to be established by historians, by the way, work arts, history of the Renaissance in Italy, first chapter is the state, second chapter is nature, third chapter is art, next chapter is popular uprisings. In other words, everything is treated as if it were the, with the same method, reference to whatever the Renaissance is held to be. So what you lose in the epochal theory is the specificity of art as art. What makes a poem a poem, what makes a painting a painting, drops out of the picture. And you eliminate everything that makes things different from each other in favor of everything that makes, makes them the same. And that means you lose specificity. You lose specificity here, too, because if you take psychological causes, let's say, to be the causes that, that you care about, let's say we say that uh, the artist, there's a woman going around who's related to all artistic activity, the fact that artists are depressed. Right? She's, uh, so it's a book called Touched by Fire. <laughs> you know, I don't know what, what that has to do with it. And then she later wrote a second volume, which is her memoir of her own depression. <laughs> so there's some suspicion about whether she was objectively looking at these things. But let's say let's say we said Yates was depressed when he wrote this, and depression was discoverable causes, and blah 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 blah. Uh, after all, someone who was getting on in years might very well feel the, the uh, encroaching decrepitude and deficiencies of age, and bring his mood down and up. But some people are depressed and they don't write poems. <laughs> some people are depressed and they jump off bridges, right? So unless you're willing to say that jumping off a bridge in a poem is, is, the same, is the effect of the same cause, you explain nothing, right? Causal explanations are not as explanatory as you think, because you'd have to come up with the causes of why this person wrote a poem instead of jumped off a bridge. And you can't do that. And if you can't do that, what has your cause explained? Not, nothing. Right? So in its own terms, you need, you need to specify so many causes to produce a unique event that unless those causes are provided, on your own standard of intelligibility, you haven't answered the question, what is the cause of the thing? Right. Why did he write a poem? Why didn't he take a walk? Why didn't he do this? You know, you can't explain it in terms of cause and event. The other thing is, and this is maybe also for the case, but again, let's stay with psychology. How much of yourself can you explain to yourself? <laughs> how much of your best friend can you really explain? Well, let's, take, let's go back to lovers. How much of your lover can you explain psychologically? Are you never surprised? <laughs> Do you really think you've gotten to the heart of another person? Have you ever gotten it? Do you think you have? All right, let's say you thought you had. Well, that person was there to, to question and observe. What are we going to do with Yates? He's been dead for 75 years. What are we going to do with Sappho? She's been dead for 2,500 years, and she was an ancient Greek. Who the hell knows how she was thinking? In other words, to pretend to explain uh, another person's psychology is already a large 
to tend to explain a person's psychology that you've never had under observation of these questions is an even larger claim. So that's a very big claim, and I don't see why I should say, and my soul aches to know why we should accept it as the grounds of a method for investigating something that we can't investigate. And yet that is what's often, often offered. All right, so they have their objections to this method, and we have our objections to that method, and the twain never meet, by the way. Um, they can be made to meet, I suppose, uh, in some sense. If we, could, if we examined enough works closely from the same period, we might arrive at an idea of historical commonality between them. But we wouldn't be starting from that idea of historical commonality. We'd be arriving at it. So we could do history on the basis of formal analysis. This class, we're not going to do that, but, we could, but by a joint selection of texts, we could do it. Maybe we will do it, if, if people want to. I don't know if we could ever get to this. <laughs> because one aspect, and this this um, be my last point, one part of this theory is that works of art are different from psychological actions, let's say, or medical events, in that a work of art, like any made thing, functions independently of its maker. A knife cuts whether you know when it was made or who made it. A work of art is independent of its maker the same way the knife is. The knife doesn't depend on you knowing the historical antecedents to get cut by it. It'll cut whatever happens. The work of art will be the work of art, whatever you know about the past and so forth. Because work of made things in general in this, in this world function independent of their makers. Symptoms don't. Psychological symptoms always have to be in the person, right? They don't function independently of them. Uh, so, it, and neither do psychic states. So, one way to make the distinction would be in, in terms of uh, in terms of the independence of the made thing. All right. Any questions? Yes. By. Just that it, it, it's, it's um, what I said before, that it's not a hole. What you're calling a hole is not a hole. Oh, that's there. Yeah. Um, and that what you're calling a beginning had a beginning. And what you're calling objective knowledge is, in fact, a dream of objectivity that nobody can actually have. Those are all based on, again, philosophical principles different from this. The subjective thing, by the way, is another also lacks specificity to art, because if everything is whatever you think it is, then everything is whatever you think it is. Um, science is a story we tell to ourselves, to give the, the classic example. Um, there's no such thing as, as male and female, it's just a social category that could be different, right? And then over on this side we say, no, actually. Men don't go to the gynecologist for a reason. It's not just a social convention and so forth. Right? That would be the test. That would be the test of the sincerity of that person. Right? So, medicine is just a story we tell, huh? Let's see, what are you going to do with that broken arm? Tell it a story, maybe? All right. Anyway. There it is. Right, so that's, that's lecture number one. Any other questions? No? 
Um, I'll continue to amplify the, the idea here as we go through different issues and always keep in contrast with the others. All right. I'm done. My weekend has just started. <laughs> now it's your turn. Where were we? We had lines of inquiry, I think. Does anybody remember what they were? 